For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I'm really happy, actually, because I, I feel like the thrills personally keep coming for me this season. If you listen to episode 183, you will know that I was absolutely obsessed with getting um, Merlin Sheldrake to speak to us after I read his genius book, Entangled Life. And there's a link. I mention this because Merlin's dulcet tones make a cameo in a very important new Australian environmental documentary all about forests and activism and actually forming the Green Party here. It's called The Giants. And if you're in Australia, it's in cinemas at the moment. And I would urge you to go and see it and take all your friends. It's a really important film. But also, I'm sure it's going to travel far and wide. It's one of those campaign films that will have a life in festivals and will, I'm sure, be seen all around the world. We'll share details in the show notes so you can see what all the fuss is about. And also, so you can join the campaign to protect native forests, wherever you are. Now, its subjects are indeed giants. They're both giants of Tasmania's magical ancient forests. You know I love trees so much. That's why I'm grinning while I'm saying this. The towering eucalypts, the Huon pine, and the myrtle beech trees who look like magical creatures. They really do. But there's another star to this film, and he is our guest. He is a giant among their protectors, the mighty Bob Brown a man I've wanted to interview ever since I got switched on to trees and environmental justice. And this week, he's here with us, (laughs) which couldn't be lovelier. So yay. Why should you be as excited as I am? For our Aussie listeners, I mean, you'll know about Bob. He's a legend. He, well, actually, he started out as a doctor in general practice in the 70s, but he is our most famous green politician, protecting our forests And these days he runs something called the Bob Brown Foundation, which is very active in today's battle to save the Tarkine rainforest in Tasmania. So he spent a decade in the Tasmanian parliament in the 80s. In the 90s, he was elected to the Senate and he actually became leader of the federal Green Party in, I think, 2005. Bob was also the first Australian MP to come out as gay, which, I mean, that just feels completely crazy today, right? But back then, that was another battle. And of course, back in the 80s, he was a pivotal figure in the the big battle to save Tasmania's Franklin River from being dammed. Why does that matter? That, that campaign, it is seminal. It mobilised a nation behind environmentalism. It saw people across Australia wake up to the need to do something to stop our wild places from being destroyed by greedy corporates. So there was a big blockade, right, on this incredible river. 1,500 people, just think about that, were arrested. And 600 of them were jailed including Bob, who spent 19 days in prison outside of Hobart. The day after his release in 1983, he was elected the first Green into Tasmania's parliament. But it doesn't matter where you are in the world. This story of building a movement on behalf of nature is, I think it's universal. We can learn so much from building these movements from the grassroots up. And actually... I might do this if you'll give me a minute. I might read you two paragraphs from a book that I wrote in 2018 
the the one called Rise and Resist, How to Change the World, because I wrote about the Franklin campaign in that, all about like, how do we build a green movement? How do we get people mobilized and involved? Because it was so significant. All right, I've got it here. Just a short bit. All right, but a good background. Um, it's from page 109, and the chapter is called Fight Club. Australia was one of the first countries to sign the World Heritage Convention. And in 1981, World Heritage status was granted to the Great Barrier Reef, Kakadu National Park and the Willandra Lakes region. The Tasmanian wilderness was now proposed, but powerful forces opposed, adding this vast area of old-growth forests, ancient caves, significant First Nation sites, rivers and gorges to the list. Why? There was money to be made. The state-owned Hydroelectric Commission planned to dam the Gordon River for a power plant, which would have drowned 30 kilometres of the Franklin and surrounding temperate rainforests. The environmentalists had seen it all before, when damming flooded nearby Lake Pedder. But the problem was, plenty of locals were up for this new scheme. They were persuaded by the promise of job creation. The newly minted Wilderness Society, which Bob had formed at his kitchen table, argued that... This was one of the last remaining waterways not marked by the hand of modern man. The Franklin must be preserved, they said. And recalls Brown. It seemed hopeless. We had the three newspapers in Tasmania, the unions, all except one, the electrical trade union, the business sector, both houses of parliament, both political parties, all in favour of the dam. And they went to Canberra and they went to see Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Fraser, and he said it's a state matter. Then they tried the high courts. They tried to argue that the Commonwealth shouldn't be lending money to Tasmania to damage a potential World Heritage area. But, recalls Bob, that got short shrift. So what changed it? Well, coloured television helped significantly. It pushed the issue into public consciousness in a new way across the country. The previous campaign to save Lake Pedder had been waged in black and white. But colour footage of the area's extraordinary beauty captured hearts and minds. What civilised society would be willing to trash this? Flooding the Franklin, said Bob Brown, would be like putting a scratch across the Mona Lisa. In June 1980, an estimated 10,000 people protested marching through Hobart. As if to prove this was no hippie rabble, Bob Brown marched in a suit and tie. (laughs) All right, I'll let Bob tell you what else unfolded. One more thing. Bob's also an author. He's written a bunch of books, as you might expect, plenty of them about nature and wild places. But there is one about optimism. Running through it is this determination that we can change the world if only we come together with others of a like mind and we keep our energy up. I love that. Bob admits he spent like a decade being pessimistic in the face of all this environmental destruction. And he says that's logical, looking at the way the world works. But he also says it doesn't work. It changes nothing. So he decided to swap to optimism. And he says he believes in the good of humans, that when we're optimistic, we get moving. So without further ado, let's get a move on and spend a delightful 40 minutes with this true giant. Please do share this episode and please do support the film The Giants. You can check out their website, www.thegiantsfilm.com. And if you're in Australia, do get out and see it. 
And wherever you are in the world, let me know what you make of this episode. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press and the show notes, as usual, at thewardrobecrisis.com. Welcome to the podcast, Bob Brown. I'm so delighted that you're making time to talk with our audience. Thank you. I hear you've been feeding the wallabies. Great to be with you, Claire. Yes, there's three generations of potteroos out there. There's mum. She's got a a little one with its head stuck out of the pouch and she's got a half-grown one standing next to her. Oh, she? Uh, Winter coming on. They, they don't mind a little bit of extra tucker. Congratulations on the film, The Giants. It's a brilliant piece of filmmaking. You actually share star billing. Directors Rachel Anthony and Laurence Billier uh, make it very clear that the official stars of the cast are you and then three others. <laughs> Since they're not here, <laughs> do you want to tell us who they are? <laughs> yes, the eucalyptus regnans, which are the tallest flowering trees in the world, and I think the tallest trees in the world, they actually had one measured in Victoria before the great forests of Gippsland were cut down by a surveyor at 134 metres high, which is 19 metres above the highest redwoods, the tallest trees now left on earth in California. Well, there's also um, in the film the Huon Pines, uh, which are confined to the the western parts, south and western parts of Tasmania, and they live up to 4,000 years old. And, of course, the giant myrtles of the rainforest in the Tarkine, Tarkina, and they're threatened with both logging and, uh, more recently, as a potential mining waste dump. Uh, a big Chinese mining company wants to put a pipeline over the Pyman River into Myrtle Rainforest, which has got rare creatures in it as well, and dump their acid wastes there. We're going to talk about that, but just on the myrtle, I was looking up potential threats that might damage the trees, and there is a fungus, isn't there, that in recent years has become more prevalent due to deforestation, I understand. Well, it's myrtle dieback. Um, Where you get deforestation, you tend to see the trees die. It's just sporadic around the edges, or if Mm. the road goes in, you Mm. tend to see it along the Mm. line. But that's the great value of the Tarkine. It's largely intact rainforest. It's temperate rainforest. In fact, a little way down the line from now, it'll be snow forest because it snows on it each year. And it's the same size as the Daintree Tropic rainforest, which have got world heritage status up uh, near Cairns, in north of Cairns in Queensland. Obviously, if you're into trees, you know that rainforests occur at different sort of temperatures and elevations. But I think if you don't know about this, you might think, oh, a rainforest is tropical. We don't have those wild places in the same way in cooler climates. But of course, we do. We do. And we've, we've known about it for a long time. Those of us with European heritage picked up on it with Hansel and Gretel and uh, Little Red Riding Hood, a whole, whole range of mythical history about people in the forest, and it was largely temperate rainforest. Um, even Robin Hood riding through the, uh, the forest to get away from the Sheriff of Nottingham. Europe has hardly got a, a square inch of native forest left, but here in Tasmania and across, across Australia, we've got some very large areas of forest which should be protected, but which aren't, and, and most European countries would give their eye teeth to have these forests in their backyard. Before we get off your co-stars, I wanted to ask you about the Huon Pine because I know that they used it to make furniture. They cut down huge amounts of it in the early colonial era, but I hadn't understood until I was prepping for this that the flooding of Lake Gordon in 1972 
drowned all these pines, but they're still there. And now they're trying to cut them down underwater, which I found completely mad. Do you, do you know about that? Yes. And there was a big grove of Huon Pine downstream of Lake Pedder on the Serpentine River when that was flooded by combined Labor and Liberal um, governments in Tasmania and Canberra. In fact, Bob Menzies put five million dollars of taxpayers money into the road to facilitate the building of those dams back in 1963 and um, that grove went under over in the Gordon catchment next door because both the Gordon and Lake Petter catchments were flooded uh, yes other large areas of hue and pine went under some had been cut but uh, or was cut at the time but now when the lakes go down they go in and and try to cut out more and the Huon pine, its great value was the shipbuilding timber because it resisted rot, and so it goes underwater and it just stays there. And some of these stumps that are coming out um, are thousands of years old, and and of course they're being, as the film The Giant shows, scientists are looking at dendrochronologists, they're called, are looking at the tree rings to see. Uh, and to prove that uh, the last 70 years have been the hottest 70 years oh, yeah. in the past 2,000 years. <gasps> the tree harbours all the secrets. How interesting. Yes, it does. And uh, the, the film flicks through human history going right back to the pyramids and these trees give a, a, a weather record going back that far. They're astonishing, but... We've just treated them appallingly. And I might add that uh, last year I was privileged to be taken by some of our adventurers and scientists down the Wilson River in the Tarkines, a little river, but its Huon Pine Forest is intact. This is an extraordinary find. It's of global significance. And yet we've got a, a company called Venture Minerals, a startup company that wants to uh, mine in that valley and with all the potential uh, threats to what what should be a global treasure? It just, it makes me so mad, Bob. I'm a tree obsessive. And when I hear this extreme short-termism, greed and stupidity, I just get so incredibly angry. I wanted to begin on that, but from the other way up, because I think one of the great legacies that you've taught us is that with our activism in order to keep at it. We've got to be positive and we've got to bring people along. My favourite review of the film is from an indie site, an indie culture site called The Curb. It is, in a world of chaos and uncertainty, be a Bob Brown. <laughs> what does it mean to be a Bob Brown? But at the screening I attended in Sydney, you talked about finding balance. You actually said you hope the film gives people licence to stand up for nature. But you talked about, you know, trying to find a way through where we, I guess... Make sure that we look after ourselves. Don't focus entirely on being angry and gloomy. What, what's your take on that to start with? Well, I think that's right, Claire. And you just mentioned about being angry and what a reasonable person you are. I mean, how could we look at what's happening to the world, the human world, um, let alone the natural world, and not be angry about it? Because that's a, a reasonable thing. And I have people coming up and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. Uh, why are you optimistic? And I say, well, you're burdened with intelligence because you can't <laughs> look at what's going on in the world and yeah. not not react reasonably by becoming angry. And then we tend to suppress that anger and and uh, get depressed about it. And it is a it's a better reaction 
to instead of suppressing the anger and becoming depressed, to convert the anger into action. And um, that's our, our motto at the Bob Brown Foundation is yeah. don't get uh, depressed, get active. And we are a, a very active organisation for the Tarkine, for the forest. We're aiming to, end, uh, along with other uh, many other groups, of course, to end native forest logging in Australia. We're, we're 20 years behind New Zealand and 10 years behind Thailand, and it's time we stop this destruction because it's so unnecessary. And you see, what it takes is community action. You can't expect it from the corporations. You can't expect it from the old political parties. It's, uh, you can't expect it from the media. It's got to come from community action. And that's a frustrating course because you will tend to get ignored and you will tend to get vilified. But it's the only sensible and reasonable course of action, and if enough of us do it, it'll happen. I, and um, we saw it in the film there, the great example of the suffragettes. They, uh, they weren't called the suffragettes because they suffered so much. They did, but because suffrage means getting the vote. And that took decades and decades, and many of those women um, who stood against the law, got arrested, got stomach pumped, the whole thing happened. Got force-fed in prison, got dragged into incarceration. It's actually, yeah. if you look, if listeners aren't aware of the history of suffragettes, it's actually incredibly, they're incredibly brave women. They were. And it wasn't just hold a placard. They were arrested, they were treated violently. It was dangerous work. It was, and vilified, and um, they had other very highly placed women condemning them. And they had the House of Lords saying, how could you possibly run an economy if women had to say, etc." All that um, stupidity of a bit more than a century ago. But the thing is, they prevailed because their idea, the time was ripe, the time had come. Now, the time is ripe for humanity to take a rain check and to stop what it's doing in destroying the natural fab fabric of this planet upon which we depend and, and, and our souls are related to it. It's good for our souls to see nature. It so is. Anyone who's ever walked amongst the trees, even in the park, knows it. I'm really obsessed with trees. I spend quite a lot of time talking to them, putting my hands on them, trying to feel the energy of them, greeting them. I really feel that you can feel the energy of a tree when you give it your attention, don't you think? Yeah, I do. And, and you know, there's another example. Um, was the tree huggers, the women of India 400 years ago. And, you know, the mother and three daughters who led that stand against the local Maharaja who wanted to build a pal palace out of their forest were beheaded. They, they really um, uh, faced, uh, but they said the spirit of those trees was in their bones, had been with their ancestors. They were, they were not going to give way. And after they were killed, the the forest was saved and and you know um i think people say oh how do you possibly face being peacefully arrested in this safe country of australia making a stand in the forests uh well go and have a look at history or look at the situation the last environmentalist i know of outspoken a young man on the streets of moscow has disappeared in and uh, recently in the you know under putin's re Repression. We simply don't have that in Australia. Mm. So we, we Aussies, are in a great position to make a stand for our forests, for our wildlife, 
for the the atmosphere which is otherwise polluted with the carbon which should be held in those carbon banks in the forest and all we've got to do is get active about it and for people who can't go out there and of course most people can't go out to the forests well support the people who are taking action to do just that or to stop the coal mines and the gas fracking which of course is killing forests including the underwater ones the the great barrier reef the coral reefs and so on and and um the great kelp forests of Tasmania, which are 90% gone due to climate change and um, all coming out of burning more coal. And here we have overnight our uh, new federal government in which so much hope was stored and, and Tanya Palibasek, the Minister for the Environment, ticking off on another coal mine in Queensland. It, it is, you know, it's just not on in this mm. age, mm. that such bad behaviour to the environment is accepted by a community which all the polls show wants to end coal mining and even by bigger numbers wants to end the destruction of what's left of our native forests and wildlife. You, you said not everybody has the capability or opportunity to go to the forest and stand up for the trees physically, but I wondered if you might take us... For those who haven't ever been to the Tarkine, could you take us in our imaginations? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? When did you first go there? And I first went to the Tarkine in 1973 when I was a young general practitioner and was looking for the Tasmanian tiger. And with a local dairy farmer, we walked in over the Rapid River and the Little, little Rapid River into this astonishing rainforest that was raining. We didn't find the tiger, but saw all sorts of other creatures. And stuck in my mind is sleeping in that rainforest at night and seeing these little blue lights appear. What? And there were worms in, in, in this rainforest. And they're fabulous fungi, all different colours. And you'll see them in the film The Giants, but they're colours, shapes, sizes. And what I didn't know then was this extraordinary interconnection they have. They connect the trees, they connect each other. They're not plants, they're not animals, they're just fungi. They're a different um, breed of creature altogether. But in the Tarkine at the moment, because it's autumn, it's wet, uh, it's their growing season, and uh, red, blue, green, purple, white, all sorts of colours and shapes. It's just a fantasy land of those fungi. And the big trees, the big myrtles, the big sassafras, um, uh, and the, the whole array of ferns under that. And then at night, these giant masked owls, which oh, the owls. Thought, not wow. live, yes, thought not to live in rainforest until our scientists proved that wrong just a year ago. And here they are nesting and feeding their young. In, in these rainforests, um, and, you, and they've got this very peculiar call at night, which I think way back a lot of people mistook, mistook and thought was Tasmanian tigers. Well, they're the biggest barn owls in the world, and they're dependent on those rainforests. And the question is, is the uh, current state and federal government, are they going to allow that to become a pocket of that, a very important pocket at McKimmy's Creek? to become a, an acid waste dump. In other words, the whole forest will be killed. What, okay, so what is going on there right now with the Chinese state-owned mining company MMG? 
Well, MMG, uh, yes, it's owned by the, the Chinese government in Beijing. Uh, it wants to uh, put a pipeline across the Paiman River, the border of the, the southern border of the Tarkine, into the rainforest because it's got two waste dumps from its mine at Rosebury. Mining what? It's mining silver, lead, zinc, a bit of gold. It's been a very profitable mine since 1885. It's been there a long time. It was bought by this Chinese company a decade ago. They're running out of place to put their acid tailings. When they bring the, the ore up out of the mine, it's an underground mine, they crush it. And that's quite acidic. It's sulfuric acid. And they've filled up their two current waste dumps outside the Tarkine. They've got other places to put it. And they've got the world's best practice, which these days is to pulverise the waste. After they take the ore out, they've still got the rock, which is not ore left, the rock and soil, pulverise that and put it as cement back into the mine, the empty mines underground. That's world's best practice, but it's more expensive. The company says it can't do it there. Well, the nearest next mine, just 15 kilometres away, is doing it now. And they should be doing it. And, and Tanya Plibersek should be saying, you take that option. But um, that's a question awaiting an answer. The last Minister for the Environment, Susan Lee, uh, the, under the coalition government, the Morrison government, gave them the go-ahead. We took that to court and said she didn't look at the owls that are dependent on that forest. Well, she didn't look at the future of children, so I don't think she cared about the owls. Yeah. Well, she certainly didn't because the court said, yes, she hasn't abided by the precautionary principle, which is in our national environment laws. She should have looked at, with precaution at what's going to happen to those owls, go back and do it again. Meantime, new election, new environment minister. So it's Tanya Plibersek that's looking at it now. And, um, you know, we were a bit distressed when she came down and saw the forest with the mining company, but not with the environmentalist. She is the Minister for the Environment, you know, uh, but we're awaiting that outcome. And all we can say is that if she does give the go-ahead for that cathedral-like rainforest to become an acid waste dump, there'll be hundreds of us there peacefully defending those forests. What? Now I'm back on to how do you maintain a positive disposition when you hear about this. But let's just hope that she does the right thing. It's not impossible. Okay, so let's talk about what else endangers these very precious wild places. So our native forests and also ancient and endangered forests across the world are being threatened by mining, logging, expansion of cities. This is from the Bob Brown Foundation website. Native forests are not only vital habitat for wildlife, they're also carbon sinks crucial for absorbing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Do you want to expand on this for us and tell us why it's so important that we we protect these wild places? Yes, Claire. Forests are largely carbon. Wood is largely carbon. And so when you see a big tree, there's a lot of carbon in it. And that's called a carbon bank because it's a place where uh, the carbon has been deposited for safekeeping. Now, when you cut that tree down uh, and its products are spread around very often, whether it's tissue paper, writing paper, even making furniture, it's just not a long-term thing. Um, and as the Giants film shows, the majority of the forest when these trees are cut down is left there, 60 or 70% is left and burnt 
up that goes as carbon into the atmosphere. I don't think people know that. So you see this in the film and that I found so startling. So it's, there's so much waste. I mean, even if you accept that we should be cutting down native forests to make pizza boxes and packaging, which is something Nicole Rycroft from Canopy Planet told me always sticks in my head. Even if you think that's a good idea, what about burning the rest? I mean, it's mad. Well, it's, it's um, capitalism writ large because it's cheap. These are the people's forests. They don't care about that. The public is actually subsidising this destruction of forests in Victoria, in New South Wales, in Tasmania and so on. And um, there's people who, who never go to those forests uh, making a lot of money about it. When I say they never go to them, these um, logging corporations, if, if the boffins there take their people for a picnic, they go to intact forests. They don't go to the, the destroyed forests that they have destroyed for profit. And it's so needless because we have over 2 million hectares of plantations in Australia to meet all our forest needs. A lot of those plantation woods are being exported at the moment. So come on, Albo, it is time to put an end to this obscene destruction of the environment and all that carbon going into the atmosphere. The United Nations points out that the cheapest way to meet the twin environmental crises of climate change and destruction of habitat of species is to protect native forests wherever we are in the world. And here we are, one of the richest countries on the planet with the best opportunity to end this obscene and wasteful. And, and, and in terms of carbon, the climate change and animal protection, criminal destruction of those forests. Mm. You mentioned that New Zealand called an end to native forest logging 20 years ago. You also said Thailand has done similar. Yes, it has. I understand Western Australia has got a plan to phase it out by this year, 2023. But then what, Victoria, Tasmania, New South Wales, what's happening there? Well, Victoria says um, uh, wait till the end of the decade. Uh, New South Wales. So 2030, okay. I'll come back to in a second. Yes, Tasmania is hopeless. They're endlessly wanting to log more. And in New South Wales, we have a newly elected Labor government of Premier Minns, which says it's going, it, it promised in the election it would create a great koala national park. Well, let's look and see what's happening there in northern New South Wales near Bellingen and Coffs Harbour and Dorigo and Taree, they're logging the forests which they said would be protected as Great Koala National Park and the environmental groups. And they're backed by majority public opinion are saying put an end to it, mm -hmm. uh, an in, a moratorium while you create this Great Koala National Park and then put an end to the logging in the South Coast forests where there's koalas and greater gliders and magnificent trees and rare plants. In fact, in native forest logging in New South Wales, that's the job for Premier Mins. This is a job shedding industry which has very few jobs compared to the tourism industry which is dependent on nature so, so often in so many places, subsidised by the public purse. And even in Western Australia, Claire, here, they've ostensibly ended native forest logging, but given the licence to bauxite companies to clear thousands of hectares of native forest so that they can get at the bauxite underneath for a once-off mining operation, come on, 
uh, West Australian government, and and there they are bulldozing as we're talking the Jalorup woodlands near Bunbury, full of extra- critically endangered Western ringtail possums, three species of rare black cockatoos, a, a minnow fish which is listed on the on its way to extinction, the two biggest mistletoe trees on earth. They're bulldozing it for a bypass around Bunbury when they could be over on empty farmland and, and avoiding that. And that was Tanya Plibersek's first decision as minister. You, you know, I saw it. It's, it's an appalling abrogation of the job of minister for the environment to defend the environment rather than to be a gatekeeper for big projects, whether or not they're Labor state governments. I wonder what it is that stops everybody from leaping out there to protest? Is it that people don't know? Is it that we have, you know, that classic thing that humans fool themselves into believing they're top of the pile and that they have dominion over everything else and so they, I don't know, they have no responsibility or they're not connected? What, what is it ignorance or greed? What is it? it no, it, it's, um, it's self-interest. It is, uh, you can call that greed, but it's a wider thing than just getting your goods. It's a wanting to be comfortable. Um, the culture of contentment, as the great American economist J.K. Galbraith called it in the 1990s in his classic book, it's wanting to just be content and, and not be distracted by uncomfortable facts. But in doing so, we are robbing all coming generations of their right to have a natural planet whether it's the plunder of the oceans or the forests or the plains, you know, or the um, indigenous heritage around the planet, uh, we have an obligation. And here's, here's the question. How come if you rob a bank, you go to jail, but if you rob future generations of much more money, you get a public subsidy? given to you by the government out of taxpayers' money. You know, it isn't ignorance. It isn't not knowing about it. It is self-comfort at a time when we should be thinking of those who are coming next, not just ourselves. All right, in the film, and I know you don't love to look back, but you have to now, you're in this film. (laughs) I've heard you say that you don't want to dwell on the past, but part of this film tells the story of the Franklin Dam campaign. And I actually wrote about it in in a book that I wrote, Bob. I'm going to show it to you. Here it is. Oh, great. I wrote this. I went on a trip with Tim Flannery to the Barrier Reef and was galvanised to write this book about activism. And I wrote about that. Just hold that up again, Claire. That's called Rise and Resist. How to Change the World. How to Change the World by Claire Press. uh, And a a recommended read for everybody who's interested in what we're talking about. Thank you. But I did, uh, for example, go out with Lock the Gate to meet families in Bulga who were being bullied by mining companies. And I met with students who were part of 350. I met with all kinds of different groups and tried to figure out how they were building movements. But I looked back to your campaign at the Franklin, which is obviously a formative moment in the history of environmentalism here in Australia. I wonder if you might share with us something when you look back over that time, what stands out to you? You've had to kind of go over it again in this film. What 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 was it like at that time? I was hit by the huge waves of people from everywhere all around Australia who were really galvanised to get involved. 
Yeah, the campaign, uh, it, it, it took seven years. That's got to be understood. Very often people think, oh, our blockade stopped it. No, the blockade was the last six months of that campaign and the court action and the change of government and Prime Minister Hawke coming in and stopping the dam using um, the constitutional power of uh, uh, having signed the World Heritage Treaty, which the Whitlam government did after the disastrous loss of Lake Pedder a decade earlier. Which, just for listeners who don't know, could you tell us, so they flooded that on purpose in order to build a dam for hydro, right? They flooded that um, illegally. It was a national park. When it was pointed out it was illegal, they had the then Labor Premier of Tasmania rush through legislation to retrospectively make the destruction of Lake Pedder legal. I've seen this happen time and again, uh, where state governments will retrospectively forgive destructive organisations, be they public or private, for marauding the public domain, but the environmentalists get charged and and taken to court. That's the difference. And uh, that's because of the power of the uh, extractive industries lobby on spineless state and federal governments and state and federal environment ministers, uh, not least, and premiers. But the Franklin campaign, we'd been down that river uh, seven years earlier. Uh, The Wilderness Society, then called the Tasmanian Wilderness Society, was formed back in 1976. And by 1983, we had campaigned with this new thing, uh, which was colour TV. It had been black and white TV since 1956, but by the time, and with Lake Better, but with this campaign, it was colour TV. So we knew we had to get the Franklin River into the living rooms of people. And and we did that through a series of films made by um, a, a number of people, but in particular, an ABC film crew went down there. So did so many other cinematographers, and Peter Dombrovskis, the still photographer, took his monumental picture of Rock Island Bend on the Franklin and all that went out into the public arena and people could see what was at stake. And so they then, at the end, through the blockade, which was up on the river, yes, we got people to come and said, um, come and help us peacefully defend this river. Now that Robin Gray, the Premier who came in, who described the river as a brown, leech-ridden ditch, and people came. Uh, 6,000 people came to Strawn, 1,300 went upriver and got arrested, 500 went to jail, uh, and they were from all over, uh, from the Northern Territory, Western Australia, everywhere, in, in, and a few from overseas as well. And the, th- the threat was a $100 fine for trespassing, and under this new law, which the uh, Tasmanian Liberal government raised through Parliament, you were prohibited from lurking, loitering or secreting in the rainforest beside the rivers. That was <laughs> what the words? <laughs> well, it was a great song in the jail, we're going to lurk, loiter <laughs> and secrete. And, and, you know, that was one of the songs that came out of that um, blockade. But the point was it got across to the Australian people and they changed their vote by droves in early 1983 to bring in the Labor government, which then promised to stop the dam and carried through with that promise. So two things stood out for me there that I want to revisit. One was you said, you, you said in passing, the Wilderness Society was formed in 1976. No, 
you and some mates formed it at your kitchen table with a membership fee of what, a dollar? <laughs> <laughs> well, particularly Kevin Keenan and Jeff Holloway, they were campaigners who'd been on the ground and, and uh, going hammer and tongs to protect the Southwest, and including Lake Pedder. And Kevin came up with this name uh, instead of the Southwest Action Committee, which was being appallingly uh, dismissed by the Premier Reese of the day. They came up with the name of the Tasmanian Wilderness Society. Um, I think perhaps influenced by the American Wilderness Society, but uh, it had the it said what we were, were protecting, which was the wilderness of Tasmania, and it was called a society, which was thought to be a sound very uh, conservative. And we had a two dollar membership, and within a year we had four hundred members. I love though that that sparked that started with. A few people. I think that's such an interesting thing to dwell on. A handful of people can create something that can mushroom outwards and create well, huge change, are, yeah. right? It, it was built on the Pedder experience too, but there were 16 greenies in beanies uh, sitting around, huddled around the fire in uh, at the end of June in frosty central <laughs> Tasmania at um, Ura Ura the place now owned by Bush Heritage, my old house at Liffey. And Kevin came up with this concept. And um, and Helen G., a uh, marvellous exponent, who's no longer with us, but she, uh, with Janet Fenton, a couple of years later, brought out the Southwest book, an encyclopedia of this wilderness. And we were underway. And, and Helen also brought out this little book called the Franklin Little um, Yellow-Covered Book in 1980, which gave everybody a very quick insight into what it was which was at stake. Well, that was the other thing, coming back to this idea of suddenly there was colour television. And I'm sure if you're listening to this and you're young, you're like, what? Who even watches television and what would life be like without colour? But you've got to imagine that when the news was broadcast at a certain time, appointment, by the way, not whenever you felt like it, in black and white, it was a different world. And to suddenly have these extraordinary, be- and especially this this guy, I forgot who he was now, let's forget him forever, who said that the, the river was some sort of dirty ditch. But when you saw this incredible beauty, the green, the majesty, the incredible colours, that did make people in their armchairs across the other side of the country wake up, right? It did, Claire. And the other thing is it was authentic. It was genuine. Our hearts were with it. And just as I've been travelling with this film, The Giants, uh, in uh, recent weeks with Paul, partner Paul, people come up and said, oh, I've just been down the Franklin River, or last year I went down the Franklin River. And the common comment from people is it's a life-changing experience. And it's now listed as one of the world's great 10 whitewater rafting expeditions by American outdoor experts, and they put it as number one for wildness because it has no, it is wilderness. And very few other rivers are left on earth which don't have some form of intrusion mm. along along their way. So it, it's, a, it's a, what a boon for Tasmania economically and employment-wise as well as uh, environmentally. It was dubbed the last wild river not marked by the hand of modern man during the campaign, right? Yes, uh, which is what wilderness wilderness is um, where we all come from. I mean, our ancestors lived in it, and there's 300 million Indigenous people around the world living with wilderness right now. Uh, but they live with it. 
with the agricultural and industrial revolutions and now the technological revolution, we're just wrecking it. Um, we're just chewing it up and spinning it out to make more stuff for ourselves. And uh, anybody can tell you that a, gro- a constant growth in anything is going to lead to a, an ultimate downfall. And yet the mania right around the world is growth economics. And th- that's why people are getting angry and depressed because we know it can't keep going, including the population Mm. growth, which is secondary to the economic growth. But um, that's the mantra of all the big parties and every government on earth, so far as I know, subscribes to it. It's going to change either badly or we'll have the intelligence to change it around. And in the process, by general agreement, protect what's left of nature. I'm glad you brought up First Nations people and the role that they're playing increasingly strongly in protecting their environment, our environment. It was powerful to hear Teresa Sainte in the film. Do you want to tell us a bit about her? Oh, Teresa is a Palawa woman. She explains in the film how they've got the answers if to nature, natural destruction, if only we want to listen. And she talks about the range of wildlife there and the ancient history of the, well, the Tarkina people with the Tarkina coast. There were a thousand of them living along that coast. When Europeans first set foot on it in New Year's Day, 1816, Captain Kelly and his whaleboat, and he was suddenly confronted by these warriors more than six feet tall and backed off very quickly. But, you know, with the power of guns, those people were, that culture was marauded by European culture within 30 years. In fact, the last Aboriginal people forcibly removed from the wilds was a family, including Bill Lanny, who was the last removed from country in Tasmania. He was a boy. And and the descended Aboriginals now are working to get the Tarkine back, and we're working with them, A, to get it back, but B, to stop these multiple threats of logging and mining and and, uh, off-road vehicles which are threatening their culture and and which Teresa Sainte talks about so wonderfully in the film. You mentioned Kevin Kiernan. So he is a caver, right? Do you want to tell us about what he rediscovered during the campaign for the Tarkine in terms of that incredible Indigenous heritage that was hidden from the modern eye back then? Yeah, well, Kevin, Kevin is a geomorphologist. He, he oh, what? Continues- he what? <laughs> uh, yes, it's a big word. What he's interested is in landforms, including caves and rock formations and coastlines and mountains. Say it again, geomorphologist. What is it? Geo. A geomorphologist. So that is geo, ge- geology, morph, the, the form of, of, of the land, and ologist is a person who studies it. But uh, yes, he's a speleologist too. That's a person who's interested in caves. And Kevin said to me back in 1981 that he'd heard there was a miner who'd been fossicking in the Franklin Valley who'd found a skeleton. I said, well, we've got to go and look for that. It could be a convict skeleton. It could be anything. We did. We didn't find the skeleton. But on the second day, coming down past Goodwin's Creek, which runs into the Franklin, and it went in underground and there were platypuses swimming in the pools above ground and then it disappeared and there was a, we had a hailstorm as we got to the Jane River which is the biggest tributary of the Franklin and around the corner from that Kevin took us back to 
this cave he'd seen some years before where he remembered there were some bones in there of uh, marsupials. But we were pulled up at the shore and we heard Kevin yelling from up in this cave. And so we hurried up there and he was looking in new astonishment at it because he said, this is a fireplace. And look, the shards come off the roof of this cave and have fallen onto that fireplace. It's thousands of years old. And when we, as our eyes adjusted to the darkness in there, there was a shaft of light at the back of the cave where a hole was in the roof of the cave and there were animal bones at the bottom of that where animals had fallen through the hole. But around this fireplace, which had the bones of cooked animals in it, were stone tools. And the shadows were playing at the entrance to the cave and you felt as if you were trespassed in somebody's house and they were about to come back in. It was an extraordinary moment of connection with the Palawa people who came here 30,000, 40,000 years ago and were the southernmost people in the world because people hadn't got to the far reaches of South America at that time. Uh, during the last ice age and of course that um, connection and and that was global news right in the franklin's darkest hour and it helped to galvanize people against the this the imminent complete destruction of that cave system and who knows what else the ancient hue and pines up the river the aboriginal people took a major role in the campaign to save the Franklin and, and were locked up for defending their country, peacefully defending their country. So, uh, so many of them went to Risdon Jail simply for uh, standing peacefully against the imminent destruction which would have come uh, were the Franklin Dam built. There was a series of four of them and they would be now a ser series of dead lakes extending right up the river around Frenchman's Cap and flooding those those caves with it. You also went to prison, Bob? Well, I did. Uh, it wasn't new for me. My dad had locked me. He was a policeman up in New South Wales and locked me up when I was six for not eating my spinach. And that, I, I told him later that was called <laughs> an unusual punishment because when I came out of the cell up the back of the Trunky Creek Jail, he made me eat it and it had gone cold by then, so it was really obnoxious. <laughs> but my mother made up to it with some, uh, as I remember, jelly and custard. Anyway, that aside. The son of a policeman goes to the Nick, though, later on. Yes. Must have felt. Well, I was a little bit less worried about it, but we had 200 people in Riston Prison, the single prison in Tasmania, and, you know, it was... It had a social outcome. The other prisoners, and many of them were in there because they were illiterate or they had a uh, abusive childhood or whatever. Um, and jails have to be for to keep um, communities safe. But I was astonished that there was no real education system going there to help people when they came out to read and write. But beside all of that, we had these songs, including We're Gonna Lurk, Loiter and Secrete, and around to a Christmas song which said, you know, we're going to the Franklin, we're going to uh, the magistrates for court, we're then going to prison and then we're going back to the Franklin around. And the prisoners loved these songs coming, the you know, 200 male voices, no doubt the same over in the female prison. 
And at the same time, the waters who were badly paved by the man who called it the the Franklin uh, a ditch were wanting a pay rise and suddenly the jail was full and uh, the government gave them a pay rise for fear that they'd strike. So, so they'd be your these... fans in the end? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it was much more serious, of course, out in the courts and um, I was taken out and questioned by the police and told that there was going to be violence and I would be responsible and I'd have to be taken. I should go out and call the blockade off. And I said to this police uh, superintendent, well, if that's the case, uh, superintendent, and you've got that information, it is your job to stop that violence. We're committed to non-violence. And they, they put me back in the, the jail cell. And uh, when I did come out, it wasn't to end the blockade, it was to support the blockade. And, of course, as it shows in the film, the, the day after coming out was elected into the Tasmanian Parliament. And I found that was a far less friendly place than Risden Prison. That comes out in the film. I think we should end on where we often begin in this podcast, which is fashion. Bob, you do know this is ostensibly a fashion podcast, although sometimes we veer so far off that course we never even mention clothes. <laughs> I'm all in favour of fashion. I, we know the exceptions, but I think it's part of human creativity and uh, doesn't nature play a big role in it? And people like to feel good. But that aside, I think one of the great fashions overtaking us at the moment and the authorities don't know how to deal with it is being an environmentalist, is going green. And I, I think it's not only going to be a fashion and a fetish, it's going to be a real have to be as the circumstances on the planet call for it. So. Yeah, there's many faces of fashion and I, I, I'm, I'm with it. I love that you said that, Bob. I wasn't ready for it. I love that you brought it down to desirability because actually fashion, although it is surface driven and can be negative and destructive, to me, the reason I keep working in it is that it's got enormous powers of persuasion. And as you said, we can if we can make something cool and inviting, then more people come along and join in. And actually, I love this idea that environmentalism has this cultural cachet that is growing. Let's make it fashionable to save our planet Earth. But that isn't what I was going to ask you, Bob. I had a very specific question, which was about the power of a sartorial statement. Because in June 1980, when you marched through Hobart, you wore what? <laughs> a suit. A suit and a tie. <laughs> and a tie. And, and when I got arrested, the same. You know, I was, there was a fellow called Walt Patterson or Parkinson in England who'd been campaigning for nuclear weapons. He wore a pinstripe suit to go into Parliament. And I, I took the cue from that, you know. And I, I, then I was on a train before they abolished those in Tasmania and a woman came to me and said, oh, Dr Brown, um, I do like your ties. You've got, uh, I, I've counted 10 of your ties. And I thought, crikey, you mustn't allow your appearance to get in the way of the message. Yeah, use your appearance to hook in people who would otherwise dismiss you as a hippie. I think that is a powerful thing. Yeah, and a, and a fellow with a mohawk haircut at the Franklin. I was trying to say to him, mate, uh, you're getting in front of the cameras and this is not helping. Uh, it's distracting us from the river. He went to, he was a good fellow. He went to S South Australia and became an environmental advocate. 
And afterwards he came back and saw me and he said, Bob, you were right. I, I used to go in to try and lobby people and they wouldn't even let me in the door. So I went down to St Vinnie's. I got a short back and side, went down to St Vinnie's and got this brown suit and tie and I get in everywhere. They're all welcoming. They're all saying, please come in, sir, and so on. And if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, no, you sell out, like you've got to align with your values and what you wear, I think there's huge power in this. Closer communication tools and we can use them to make statements we can take the power of them and use them for our own ends, and I like it. Yeah, we had a cupboard at the Wilderness Society, which it was called the Camouflage Cupboard. You didn't. And you went and got your, your own shirt and, yeah. and coat if you were going to see uh, somebody who um, needed to be impressed or high heels, whatever it was, dress as you want to. <laughs> um, but if you've got the cause in mind, well, think about what's not going to get in the way of me getting this message across it's a it's a good it's a good thought you don't have to but it's a good thought thank you for being such a good sport and finishing on something that's so outside of your core area of interest before we go i would like to urge everyone to see this film if you're in australia but bob do you want to leave us with a rousing call to action you've got the national day of forest action coming up in august we have. It's, it's three days ending on the Saturday with rallies in cities to end native forest logging in Australia. Come on, Albo, it'll help the climate crisis. It'll certainly help the extinction crisis. And it'll make this country feel good. Isn't that every Prime Minister's duty to make us feel good? <laughs> Let's end native forest logging. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press.